Um, but it is with great um, pleasure and honor that I get to introduce uh, John Wyatt. Um, he's going to come and he's going to preach Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7 today. Uh, John and his family, Aaron and his two boys, uh, PJ and Timothy, they joined the church back in last fall. And since then, uh, John has been involved with the youth, coming on Tuesday nights, helping out with Andrew. And in fact, the entire family of the Wyatts went on the winter retreat, boys and everything. And they went uh, with Andrew and helping with the students on the winter retreat this last year. This is a family that they love God. They desire uh, to follow God's will wherever it leads them. And most importantly, they desire to be shaped by the word of God. And so if you remember uh, several months ago, I said, does anyone here desire uh, to learn how to preach, that they would stand up here and and be able to preach the word of God? And John said, I I want to do that. And so we began to meet. And uh, we met, we've been meeting for several months, uh, about once a week, and we, we go through the book of Galatians. We've been looking at a preaching book, talking about it, praying about it, and uh, this is really what we see in the Bible, right? If you remember, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it's easy to remember, 2, 2, 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, I want you to take what I have told you, the message, the word of God, and trust it to faithful men so that they will entrust it to other faithful men. The whole idea is multiplication, men teaching men who teach men who teach men who teach men the word of God. And that's really our desire here at Timberline, not only for men, but, but for all uh, men and women that we'd all know the word of God, that we'd love the word of God, and we'd be prepared to wield the word of God. And so John is going to be standing here today, um, but we desire, whether it's in a pulpit or anywhere, that we would all be equipped to know the word of God. And so that's something that uh, John deeply desires, and so I want to go ahead and ask him to come up as uh, I want to be able to pray with him today. And I want to encourage you, as I know you will already, um, (laughs) But after the sermon, come and encourage him. Uh, let him know how just the Spirit worked through him, that you'd be encouraged, convicted, maybe corrected, maybe rebuked even. Uh, but let him know just how, you, how the Spirit used him today for the preaching of the word in your life. And so let him know it's a great honor just to be able to, to be with him and to talk with him through this. And so I want to pray with him now. Uh, Father, I just thank you for John. I thank you that he loves you. I thank you that he's my brother in Christ. I thank you that he desires to shepherd his family well. And Lord, I thank you that he humbly submits himself to your word. And Lord, I pray that now as he preaches your word, that God, you would be greatly honored and glorified. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be in him and that through him, your word would come forth to us, that we would be encouraged and corrected and rebuked if needed. But that, Lord, through the preaching of your word, that, Lord, life comes. That may we have fresh understanding of your gospel today. May we grow in our joy today through your word. May we grow in the conviction of making disciples who make disciples for your glory in all nations, God. And, Lord, I thank you for John. Use him now greatly. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. All right. Thank you, Nick. Um, So if I could maybe paraphrase what Nick just said. Um, I think he wants you to tell me after the service how awesome I did. (laughs) So just keep that in mind when you're, you know, taking notes. (laughs) All right. So this morning we're going to be in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. um, And we're going to be talking about how God redeemed us through Jesus Christ 
so that we may be co-heirs with Christ. So if you would please stand and open your Bibles to Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please have a seat. So as Nick mentioned, we've been going through the book of Galatians uh, off and on for the last several months. And the reason Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians is because the Galatians have been basically saying you need faith plus works, faith plus adherence to the law, faith plus circumcision. So Paul is writing to say all those things have a purpose and a reason. The law has a reason and serves a purpose, but you can't justify yourself through the law or through circumcision or through any of those other things. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. The first three verses here, he's talking about heirs and guardians and managers. Uh, And so when I first read this, I immediately had a flashback to, uh, to my high school European history class. Um, and we talked about this idea of a regent. So the king, um, if he was getting close to the end of his life, he would usually appoint a regent to basically manage the kingdom or manage his estate uh, until his son, his heir, was old enough to actually do it himself. Obviously, you know, you don't want a 10-year-old running a whole kingdom. So that was, that was the purpose of the, of the regent, of the manager. So that was sort of a... That term kind of came into being during the Middle Ages, but it's really that same idea that he's talking about, Paul is talking about here in Galatians. It's appointing somebody to manage the estate because the child is simply not mature enough yet. And that is what the law did for us during the Old Testament. We managed, you know, managed ourselves because we just, we weren't mature enough yet. (coughs) So verse 2, it says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So the Galatians, what they're doing is they're basically saying, look, we want to be under the law. We want to be that adolescent that is still being managed by by his his father's regent, his appointed manager. So if we think of uh, this relationship between God and his people as sort of a personification of a child going through the various stages of development. You get Adam and Eve, and that's sort of like the birth of this relationship, the birth of God's people. And then you have uh, Noah and all the patriarchs, that sort of his people going through the, their infancy, their toddlerhood, if you will. And then you get all the way to the point of Abraham, and then eventually to the law. And I sort of see the law as, receiving of the law as, okay, we're moving into that adolescence. We're basically middle schoolers at that point. And so the Galatians, they're kind of like that 35-year-old that moved back in with their parents. But even more so than that, they're not just like, oh, I'm moving back in with my parents. It's, 
I'm moving in with my parents, and I'm going to re-enroll in middle school, and I'm going to go to bed at 9 o'clock, and I'm going to follow all the rules I followed when I was 13. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's basically what Gla the Galatians are doing by adhering to circumcision, adhering to the law that was given to them from Moses. So why, and, and they take it, Paul takes it a little bit further and says that not only are you just child, children, you are slaves. You're, you're enslaving yourself to the law. So why, why, did we even, why did we even have the law to begin with? So before I go into this next uh, illustration, I just want to say that I do really love grandparents. I, I love my own grandparents. I love watching my parents be grandparents to my children. But I've noticed something uh, becoming a parent myself, that there must be some sort of switch that gets flipped or some, some change that happens when you transition from being a parent to a grandparent and that you no longer see the importance, maybe, of discipline. <laughs> And that uh, those children are just perfect angels and they couldn't do anything wrong, right? So whenever I'm disciplining my children and I have my parents or Aaron's parents around and they'll say things like, oh, but PJ, he's so young. He doesn't understand what he's doing. He's just, you know, he's a little angel. He's so innocent. And after I'm done rolling my eyes, I calmly say to them, I know, I know he doesn't understand. I know he doesn't see what he's doing is wrong. And that's why we discipline him. That's why we have to discipline him, because if I don't, he'll never understand not to do these things. And that is why God gave us the law. He gave us the law to say, what you are doing is not right. You are sinners. You always will be sinners, and you, you can't do this on your own. It was not a means of justifying ourselves. It wasn't, okay, well, if you do all of these things, you can be justified and you can be part of my family. No, it was just to say, look, you can't do this on your own. You can't follow all of these rules. It's, it's impossible. In Galatians 3, uh, 19, we went through this last week. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, under the, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So basically, Paul is saying, look, it wasn't to give us a means to justify ourselves. It was to show us that we could not justify ourselves. Imagine Jesus coming at the time of Moses and saying, I'm here to save you all and forgive you of your sins. They would probably just say, okay, well, that's great, but I'm, I'm not a sinner. I'm a generally good person. I'm, I should be good, right? And I think we get that a lot even today with, you know, talking to unbelievers about, uh, about church and about God and what Jesus did for us. And you say, God, Jesus died for our sins. And usually the response I get is, well, am I, if I'm a good person, am I not going to go to heaven? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. Sure, if you were a good person, you would probably go to heaven. But that's the point, is that you are not a good person. You're a sinner just like the rest of us. So we move on to verse, to verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. So what this verse is telling us is that God has had a plan. And maybe some of you can relate to this uh, mindset that I had when I was a little bit younger, sort of a younger Christian. I had this mindset for a long time that God had to continually adjust his plan, had to continually try, try different things uh, to get us to fix that relationship with us. So, for example, he had... 
Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were, you know, okay, everything's going great, had this great relationship. Oh, but they sinned, so, okay, got to kick them out of the garden, let's start over. So he kicks them out of the garden, and, and then, you know, there's a time period, he, he starts over with Noah and the ark, and he thinks, okay, I've got this, I've got this set. Noah's a proven righteous man, he's got a righteous family, there, it's going to be, it's all going to be good going forward. And then, okay, sin continues to enter the world, and, you know, there's just lots more uh, things going wrong. So he, he brings up Abraham, and he builds up his people, um, and he even gives them the law, and he thinks, all right, they've got the law. They know what they need to do now. It should be, it should be all set. And then we hit judges, and it just time after time after time of people, you know, sinning against God and, and falling short of his glory. And he thinks, man, I just, I can't fig- figure these people out. What am I going to do? He says, I know, Jesus, we're, we're going to do the nuclear option. I'm sending you in. You know, you're going to die for their sins, and, and it's all going to be great. And I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but, you know, we're, this is the last resort. Well, I can tell you that it could not be further from the truth. Jesus has always been the plan. God had the plan for Jesus even back in Genesis uh, when he's talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. So if you look at Genesis 3.15, so here is God talking to, specifically to Eve and the serpent, right after, uh, right after he is, the serpent has manipulated Eve into eating the fruit. So Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right here, we see God is foretelling the coming of Jesus. When he's he's talking about the woman's offspring offspring bruising the head of the serpent, that is Jesus. He is going to come, and he is going to trample the head of the serpent, which is essentially sin uh, in our world. So even, even in Genesis, even at the beginning, God had a plan, and the plan was Jesus. And it's important that Paul emphasizes born of a woman, born under the law, for that exact reason. He's referring back to, back to Genesis when he talks about the offspring of the woman. And he's talking about born under the law because he's showing that it is all the same plan. It's not, well, we had the law and that didn't work out, so we're going to send Jesus and that's, that's the new norm. No, it's all part of the same plan. So I know a lot of people, and I'm, I'm the same way, we kind of struggle with reading the Old Testament. We think, well, really, the, Old, the New Testament is where it's at. That's the interesting stuff. And, you know, we're in the time of Jesus, so that's, you know, that's where I should spend my time. And I might as well just cut out the, the Old Testament. It'll be a lot easier to carry around my Bible that way. But if you're uh, completely ignoring the Old Testament, you're missing the whole story of why we need Jesus. And even Paul refers to the Old Testament constantly. And so if you don't understand the Old Testament, it's going to be very difficult to understand what Paul is talking about. So I would encourage you, first of all, if you don't spend much time in the Old Testament, I would encourage you to work that into your, your weekly and daily reading plan. And the other thing I would say is, if you're having trouble getting through the Old Testament, because, let's face it, it's pretty dry, I would read it through the lens of, how does this point towards Jesus, and how does this show me my need for Jesus? So moving on to verses 5 through 7. 
the verse 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this was something when I first was preparing the sermon and reading through this passage, I just kind of glazed over that verse 5. Like, okay, yeah, he redeemed us, and now we're sons. That's, that's pretty cool. So let's go ahead and move on to the good stuff, right? Well, I think that's, you know, that's sort of a trap we fall into a lot is that is the gospel right there, and you're just kind of glazing over the best part, right? So that Jesus, he's, or God sent his son Jesus to redeem us, to, to uh, redeem us from, from our sins. Now, um, I'll just give you a little background about myself. I am a uh, finance officer in the Army. I majored in finance in college. I married an accountant. So I'm a pretty big numbers nerd. I'm a pretty big finance nerd. <laughs> so um, I like the term reconciliation instead of redemption. So that's a term they use in different parts of the Bible. And it helps me to understand this relationship of what God did for us when he sent Jesus. So when you are at the end of the month, when you're balancing your checkbook, because we all still do that, right? Everybody balances your checkbook. No, it's, it's a joke. I know nobody does that. It, even we don't do that. So it is <laughs> there might be a few of you out there who are like, yeah, balancing checkbook, it's awesome. Um, but theoretically, if you did balance your checkbook, you would, you would get your bank statement at the end of the month, and then you would have your ledger in your checkbook. And you know, your bank statement would say you have X amount of dollars, and your checkbook would say you have some different amount of money. And so the reason is you, know, you have some interest that you might get from the bank or some fees that they may charge you that's not accounted for in your checkbook. In your checkbook, you might have some checks that haven't cleared the bank yet. So the numbers, bottom line is the numbers are going to be different. So you go through this process of making adjustments until you get the two numbers to match. So you're making the numbers right with each other. And that's what God did for us when he sent Jesus. He made us right with God. There was a discrepancy on our book and his, and there was no way we could make that adjustment on our own. And that's why he sent Jesus, to make that adjustment for us. Moving on to verse 6. It said, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I think a lot of times when we read this, you know, and even I, when I first read this, I sort of superimposed my notion of adoption, my modern-day notion of adoption, into this passage. And, you know, that's a very intimate sort of emotional experience when you adopt somebody into your family. And you're making, you're taking somebody who, you know, doesn't have a father, doesn't have parents, and you're making yourself their parents. And that's, you know, and that's great. And I don't want to take anything away from that aspect because there is a lot of the Bible that talks about God being a father to the fatherless. And even in this passage, when he uses the term Abba, Father, Abba is a very intimate term. You, it's, I've heard it translated even as just Daddy. You know, you're, we're able to call God Daddy. So I don't want to take away from that intimate relationship. But I want to highlight something that maybe we don't necessarily see on the first read. So in the Roman Empire during that time, the wealthy people, nobility, uh, the emperors, it was very important for them to have heirs to continue their legacy, to inherit their estate. And so it was, they couldn't just have anybody be an heir. 
you couldn't have a daughter, for example, be an heir. You couldn't have a nephew or a cousin or a brother be an heir. You had to go through this process of adoption, and you would adopt them as sons. So when it talks about adoption here, it's not necessarily somebody who doesn't have parents or somebody who is even an infant. You could adopt somebody who is um, a teenager or even an adult, and they may have living parents. So when you're adopting in the Roman Empire, in this, you know, in this culture, you're adopting them for the sake of making them your heir. And that's why God uses, or that's why Paul uses the term sons. It's not trying to exclude women, and it's not some sexist term that, you know, is just the culture of the day. No, he's saying, look, you are all, everybody, men, women, everybody is going to receive this legal status as heirs, because that is what God is doing when he adopts us into his family. He's giving you this legal status. There is that emotional aspect of he's making you part of his family, but it's more than that. It is a legal status, and he wants you to inherit everything that he has. So what does it, what does it mean to be heirs of God? What does it mean to be sons of God? Well, I think the first thing it means for us um, is that we can take great comfort in being sons of God. So if, he is, if you are God's son, um, he is going to take care of you. He's going to provide for your, for your physical needs, for your emotional needs, your spiritual needs. Um, he, is, he is going to provide for you. I know that from my personal experience, Aaron and I, we're, I'm in the army, and so we've moved all over the country, um, and every place we go to, it's a, it's a big question mark of what is our community going to look like at that new place? Um, are we going to have friends? Are we going to have a church? And that's hard for us because Aaron and I are both very introverted people, so it's, it's natural for us to just kind of stay at home on Sundays and, you know, watch TV or hang out in our pajamas. And so it's hard for us to get out there. And yet, every place that we've gone, God has provided that community. He's provided those people that pour into us, and help us to grow spiritually. But, that does not necessarily mean that you're going to have a comfortable life. So this is obviously, this is not a gospel of prosperity, that God is going to give you everything you ever wanted, and, you know, he's going to heal all of your wounds and your sickness, and you're just going to be a millionaire and happy all the time. Because that's not what we see in the Bible. Take Job, for example good, righteous man after God's own heart. What happened to him? He lost everything. Paul, good, righteous man after God's own heart. What happened to him? Beaten, thrown into prison. So I'm not saying that to scare you because that doesn't, it's not necessarily going to happen to all of us, but I say that just to let you know that even though God is with us and he will provide for us, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be comfortable. We should expect our lives to look a lot like what Jesus' life looked like, a life of service and a life of sacrifice. And finally, God gives us the power of his spirit to do his will. So the last illustration that I'll, I'll use today, uh, and this is one of my all-time favorite movies, so if you haven't seen it, definitely go out and watch it today if you can. Uh, the Kingdom of Heaven. So it's Orlando Bloom and Liam Neeson. Um, <laughs> so Orlando Bloom is this, uh, is this peasant during the Middle e Ages. 
and he, you know, he has nothing, basically. His infant child died, his wife committed suicide, so he doesn't have a family, he doesn't have money, he doesn't have land, he has nothing. He's a truly, he's a wretched man. He even committed a very violent crime. So he is like, you know, he has hit rock bottom. Um, and then his father, his estranged father, comes, and his father is uh, Liam Neeson. He's a no- nobleman, so he has a lot of land, a lot of money, a lot of respect, a lot of power. He comes in and basically readopts his son, claims his son as his heir. And Orlando Bloom, he doesn't, he can't do anything to earn that that sonship. He just, he's adopted. And then. Liam Neeson on his deathbed, and it's pretty early in the movie, so hopefully it doesn't spoil anything for you. <laughs> Liam Neeson gives this charge to his son. He says, I want you to be a good knight. And there's this whole little exchange in the speech that he does of what a good knight is. And then he dies. And so now Lo- Orlando Bloom has this choice of, am I going to live up to that legacy, or am I going to do whatever I want? Because now he has the money and the power to do whatever he wants. And he chooses to live up to that legacy. He chooses to be the good knight. And he's not necessarily perfect. He makes mistakes along the way. Um, But he's still, he's living up to that legacy. He's living up to the good knight legacy. And I think the difference between that and what God does for us is that Orlando Bloom kind of did that on his own power. But we don't have to. God gives us his spirit to do that through us. In verse 6, it says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He will make that transformation in us. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, it's something that will probably occur over the course of your lifetime. And it's not always going to be easy to have that transformation. But God will work through you to make you that new creation. Now, I don't know exactly what that new creation is going to look like because it's different for every person. For me, that change has happened through me volunteering with youth group and even being up here this morning. Uh, that, those two things are, you know, if you asked me 10, 15 years ago, I would never have imagined that I would volunteer with youth group or be up here giving a sermon. Um, but that is the change that God has made through me. And the joy in that is that there is no report card. I don't have to earn an A or B or C to, to pass the test. It is, I've already passed the test. He's, the test was faith in Jesus. Now it's just living out that joy by doing God's will. And so if I fail, if I give a terrible sermon and you all walk away thinking, wow, that was the worst I've ever heard, That's okay, because I am still a son of God. I'm still an heir of God. If I go on Tuesday night and, you know, I make fun of all the kids because I'm better at sports than they are, (laughs) I don't do that, by the way. But if I did, that's okay, because I am still an heir in God. And so as you go forward today, I just want you all to have that joy of, I am an heir of God. I am a son of God. And that is a truly joyous thing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for making us your heirs. Thank you for bestowing on us all that you have. I pray that you would encourage each of us this morning. Give us the knowledge that you are with us, even in our trials and tribulations. Have your spirit work in our hearts to make us into a new creation. 
In your name we pray. Amen.